we jump into our theme for this week, uh, that song that we just sung is my prayer for myself and my prayer for you as well. That Jesus would be the place that we fix our eyes, that He would be the thing that we wrap our lives around. Uh, this week, as we look at our identity reform, the question is, is who am I? And Jesus tells us, actually, rather, John tells us at the end of his gospel, uh, the anchor for our lives, where we can, can set our lives, where we can be firm, where we can be secure, uh, from John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Life in his name. In other words, out of your relationship with Jesus, you can have life. And yet I think we as people, we, um, we start trying to find our, our meaning for life, our purpose for life, and all sorts of, of other things. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I've been watching into my kids, and as I was studying for this week, uh, their interactions got new purpose in my life as I started to see it a little bit differently. Because the question that they're asking underneath the fits and the tantrums that are common with two-year-olds and four-year-olds, if you have them, you know. The question is, do you love me? When I steal something from my sister and I'm looking at you and wondering how you're going to respond, the question is, how important am I? Am I more important than my sister? And they're wrestling with that identity piece as they're wondering if they're loved. See, that's the, the big question that, that all kids start out with. Am I loved? Am I important? Do you care? You see, in spite of what Gary Smalley would say about who we are and our identity and where we can find security and confidence. Somebody knew who Gary Smalley was. That was great. Um, relationship is always the thing that forms our identity. Our identity is always determined in our relationship with others. And so that's what we start out life looking for, is we start out looking for it in our parents, in our, our immediate family. We start asking that question, who am I? Am I important? Am I lovable? And then as we start to get older, we start asking that question of friends. And all of a sudden, as, as you get a little bit older, we start looking for it in our relationship with others. Am I part of the cool crowd? Do people like me? Do people want to be around me? And, and there's kind of weird things that happen in all this, right? Because the, the tantrum that a two-year-old or a four-year-old throws seems to be out of proportion to the crime, right? Whatever is going on, the tantrum is bigger. The same thing happens when we're in adolescence and it's all about friends. If a friend turns their back on us, betrays us, yes, that's a hard thing. But the thing that that does to us, right? We can sometimes act as if the end of the world is upon us. And then that goes into high school. And in high school, what, it's, what is it all about? The significant other in our life, right? The boyfriend or the girlfriend. And life is great if that person is in our life and if they like us and things are going well. And if that relationship is on the rocks, it's as if life is over, Right? Anybody that's had a teenager has witnessed this firsthand. May God be with you. I remember one day walking into, um, into the lunchroom, and because of the way lunch was set up, we had a split lunch at our school. 
And um, the only people that were in my lunch, because I figured out a way to make drafting count for a foreign language to get me in college, now I'm realizing that probably wasn't a good choice. But the only people that were in lunch with me at that time, because everybody else was in a language class, was a bunch of girls. And so I remember walking into the lunchroom one day and sitting down at the table to eat lunch with them and thinking, wow, did I just walk onto the set of The Bold and the Beautiful? Because everything was about relationship and who is dating who and, and power plays and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, everybody's searching for meaning in something that's so fleeting. But it doesn't get better for us, does it? You see, we as people are constantly looking for meaning. We, we fix our eyes on these other things. These other things that determine who we are to find our identity. Uh, we can look for it in our spouse. And where that becomes really dangerous and really hard is when things aren't working out the way we want them to. Because instead of realizing that God has placed that person in your life to help you understand what's wrong with you and by His grace fix you, you say, the problem is not me, it's them. And the relationship breaks down. As you think, if, if they're not the person that, that God, you know, they're not perfect, well, I'm good, so I'm just going to find someone else. And yet that's not God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage is to work through husband and wife by grace and love and forgiveness to transform you into who God has designed you to be. We look for identity and purpose in our kids sometimes. We look for it in sports. I mean, that was one that, that hits close home to me is, is for me, I was a runner. That was one of the primary ways that I identified myself. And then when I lost that, I had that kind of moment of, who am I? And perhaps one of the most dangerous ones for us as men, and I've seen this in people in my life, is, is we identify with our career. And when we identify with our career and we're successful, we're in a, in a place where we, we feel like we are the king of the world when we're, we're running everything and everything's working, but then when that falls apart, it's not, oh, I lost my job, I'm going to go find a new one. It's, who am I? And these words that close out the Gospel of John, these words are written that you may believe Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Those words call us back to finding life only in Jesus, as that being the anchor for who we are. And the hard thing that I've sometimes found out in my own life is we have this tendency as people to fix our eyes on things that we can grab a hold of, whether it's the things that we can make or the things that we can do or the people that we hold close. And sometimes... Sometimes it takes losing those things, letting go of those things in order for us to grab hold of Jesus. 
when we're holding on to other things, we cannot take the hand of Jesus and let him lead us through life. As Isaiah the prophet spoke prophetically about who Jesus was and how God would grab hold of us, he, he writes these words in Isaiah chapter 42. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. When we're grabbing so tightly onto other things, how can the Lord take us by the hand and lead us? How can he show us that he has something better in mind for us, in store for us? Because all those other things that we can grab hold of, those things can be, can be lost. Because we live in a fallen and a broken world. But God, God the Father has grabbed hold of you in Jesus Christ. And he's never going to let go of you. Uh, let's hear how, how, how this can be transformed in our lives so that we don't have that bipolar reaction to things that, that go wrong in our lives. And yeah, I get it. Things happen in our lives that are, are bad and are hard and that break our hearts. But the call of the gospel is that when those things happen, it's not the end of the world. In the midst of the suffering and the loss, we can have hope because we have something secure. Paul writes, explaining what Isaiah prophesied about in Romans chapter 5. Hear these words. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that in our suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given uh, to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have been now justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In those words, Paul lays out how in Jesus Christ, he grabs you by the hand. How he justifies you, how he makes you right, how he draws you to himself, how he gives you an anchor, something that will hold firm, something that you can base your life on no matter what comes. See, we can build our identity on thinking, okay, I'm a good person and I can do this and I can do that. And yet in these words from Paul, we find out that, that God chooses to love us 
when we're enemies. When we're, when we're ungodly, when we're opposed to him, God chooses to love us when we're at our worst. And so in these words, we find out that we're worse than we think we are. And yet in these words, we also find out that God is far more loving and gracious. And more than that, those crazy words, those words that I want to push against in this text, the words that say we glory in our sufferings. Those are hard words. Because we don't want to suffer. And yet what I've found in my life is that in the midst of suffering, by faith and by the grace of God, God drives me back to Him. And as the storms of life blow and grow, I become stronger and better anchored in my Savior. And by his grace, God continues to transform me. It's like what you see sometimes happen with trees out here in California. Everything's on irrigation, right? Gets water every day for about 15 minutes. What happens when that happens over time to a tree? The roots don't go where? Deep. They stay at the surface. And the wind doesn't blow all that much here, and so the roots aren't forced to grow down and grab hold of the earth. And so when the storm comes, trees fall down. What suffering produces in us is a, is a lack of water for us, and so our roots begin to grow deeper. When the winds come, it causes our roots to grow deeper and grab hold more securely of the rock, Jesus Christ. So that as suffering comes in our life, we become more firmly rooted and anchored in who Jesus Christ is for us. I want to close with a story. I try to get rid of this story. I really, I try to get rid of this story. Uh, I heard it a couple of weeks ago, and I just couldn't shake it. It's just this weird story in the middle of the Old Testament. You've probably skimmed over the name because you can't pronounce it. It's the story of Mephibosheth, and I think I got it right. Second Samuel, oh, somebody knows. This is cool. Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came to Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. Okay, what's the big deal? Why is this important? Why does this mean anything at all? This little name tucked away somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament. Well, what happens in the ancient world when a new king comes to power. When a new king comes to power, you eliminate all of the former reign so that there's no one that has claim to the throne. You get rid of everybody else. And, and in the Bible, David is different. David doesn't do that. But the practice, I mean, this is very new for Israel. David's the second king. Saul was the first. And so they don't know how this is going to go. And so in all the the countries around and the kingdoms around, when this happens, the old family that is getting disposed from the throne needs to run as fast as possible. And so that starts to take place. But this is not what David does. David actually goes to defend Saul's family and doesn't want them put to death because David is a king after God's own heart. 
And so David tracks down, and in the middle of 2 Samuel, in chapter 9, David tracks down Mephibosheth and finds Ziba, the servant of King Saul, and gives back to Mephibosheth the entire inheritance that is due his family. Gives him back the kingdom and the name and the land. Because in ancient Israel, the land was everything. Israel people were people that were grounded the land. The land was, was who you are. It was your identity. And so Ziba, the servant of Saul, who was supposed to run the land for Mephibosheth, double-crosses Mephibosheth, undermines him, makes him look bad before the king. And I want you to get this, this picture, this picture of who this character is. Mephibosheth is, is lame, and he has, you know, because of his legs and because of falling. And so when he comes in, see, the king did more than just give him back his land. He also gave him a seat at the king's table. And so Mephibosheth, when he comes in to sit down at the king's table, he comes in limp, drag, limp, drag. And he sits down with the likes of Absalom and Solomon, the king's best, the king's most bold, the king's most beautiful people. And here is Mephibosheth, lame, an outsider, deserving of death. But the story unfolds later in chapter 19 after Ziba had done all this stuff to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth says this to David, all my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my Lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to my king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. You see, the land had been, been taken from him, and so David is giving it back. And Mephibosheth turns and says this, Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Know that the, now that the Lord, the king, has returned home safely. The king went away to war, and this feud broke out. And here, when Mephibosheth is granted everything, he says to sit at the king's table is all I desire. To have you look upon me in grace and mercy. When I was one deserving of death, you chose to give me a place at your table. And in comparison to that, nothing else means anything. Jesus Christ, the King of creation, has given you a seat at the table. And it is my prayer that that would become more and greater in your heart and in your life. That those other blessings that God gives you can be blessings, not the foundation of your life, because you have the favor of the King.
because you have that favor, your life is secure in Him. And your identity is founded in Him. Amen. So I've got a little homework for you. If you believe those words, I encourage you to to dig into those words of Scripture that are in your little handout today. I encourage you to to go find the songs uh, that we sing and and anchor your heart uh, again in those words, those words that we confess about who Jesus is as the center of our life and and some of the ones we're going to sing in a little bit, and let those words speak to your heart. As we sing now how, how Christ alone it is where we find our meaning in life as we sing those wonderful words of the song in Christ alone.